welcome to Spirited Conversations. I'm your host, Terry Kennedy. Over the years, friends, family, colleagues, and sometimes complete strangers have shared personal stories with me of encounters with departed loved ones or with unknown entities that couldn't be explained away. These stories have always intrigued me, both personally as a person of faith and professionally as a researcher. Through this podcast, I seek to share and honor these experiences. Woohoo! Welcome to Spirited Conversations, Craig. Well, thank you, Terry. It's great to be here. Is it okay that I divulge that you're my brother? For me, that's priceless. And I've talked about you in the podcast. Mm -hmm. If you listen to a few episodes, you're already there. I just say my brother. I don't say my brother, Craig. At 70, why do I care? What are you going to do to me? Well, and that's exactly why I'm finally doing a podcast Mm -hmm. about a topic that I've been interested in forever. I was involved in a group that was a nationally recognized legitimate group, and there were a bunch of academics involved in it. And I was told no one would take me seriously if I had anything to do with spirituality. But now it's like, I'm just going to let my spiritual freak flag fly high. Let's start with your first experience that you just couldn't quite explain away. Yes, this really all started for me in my childhood, and quite honestly, very, very young. I remember about the age of maybe five, having a recurring dream that for a five-year-old didn't make a lot of sense. I was driving a car, which you don't do at five years old, and I was on a very narrow two-lane mountain road with a straight cliff on one side and a straight drop on the other, and a very, very, very short rock wall. And a series of trucks came down and knocked me off the road. And the end of the dream, I'm just in the car falling. And it's like a late 40s, early 50s kind of car. And I'm falling into a forest. I I know that I'm falling into a bunch of trees but it's just one of those that takes forever to fall. And then I always wake up before I hit. What was odd about it to me is how recurrent the dream was. I mean, it got to the point that some nights I just didn't want to go to sleep because I was going to have this dream again. It finally faded away. But what I thought was odd later in life is why would a five-year-old have that kind of dream? Where would it come from? Yes, television was on at the time, but that's a little more sophisticated than I think a five-year-old would have. And then I started hearing about people who, at a very young age, remembered a prior life death. And I wondered, well, maybe that is what happened. The other interesting part is, to this day, I am just pins and needles driving on a mountain road with cliffs on either side. (laughs) And yet, what's odd is in my work life, 
I thought I would be scared to death because one of the things I had to do was ride in a helicopter on the gunner seat, slid out to video some things. And I thought that that would just freak me out. Didn't bother me a bit. But to this day, if I'm on a mountain road, I'm just shot as soon as I'm done. You know, it's like, okay, I got to (laughs) stop. I'm just pure panic. So it's left a big mark on me. The thing that I don't understand is just doesn't seem logical for me to have that kind of dream at that kind of age and then have it carry forward to such a panic kind of thing. We're brother and sister, so we've been together for a long time. And we have never talked about this, but what is so weird, Craig, is I have the same dream. It's a slightly different version of it, but it started out when I was a little girl. Remember when you used to have those go-karts in South St. Paul, I think? Yeah, the ones we built. Right. So my first nightmare was I was on the go-kart and I couldn't stop. And I would always wake up before I'd fall off the the big hill or whatever. And then before I was old enough to drive, it turned into that I was driving a car and I was on this mountainous, hilly road and I lost my brakes. It was always about losing my brakes. And again, I don't know why as a little kid, I would be driving a car in my dream and losing my brakes in a dream. And same as you, I would always go over the edge and then wake up before I hit. Oh, and then there was a time when we had an RV. And in that dream, I was in the RV. I wasn't driving, but we went over a cliff and went into a lake. And I'm trying to escape through the top of the RV vent so I don't drown. And then now my dream is I'm going up, you know, those big overpass things that they have, but I can't tell where the top is and if it turns or if it goes straight and I'm trying to go straight and I get to the top and I realize it turns and I go over the edge and I'm terrified of those things. So anyway, it's just weird that you and I share that and we've never talked about it. Well, once my dream of that went away, it didn't conjure into different versions as it appears yours has. It just ended. Other than the panic that I have now driving on mountains, which I've gotten better at controlling, I still have that little inner child that goes, oh, this is terrible. This is bad. This is not good. And I've got the white knuckle thing on mountains too. If Charlie's driving, I have to like literally close my eyes. I just can't even look. I've gone four wheeling with somebody else driving and they've taken me on roads and they go, look out at the beautiful Vista. And I'm staring at the floor mats. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I can appreciate that. Again, it's an oddity. I'm not sure how much of it's paranormal how much of it may have been a past life kind of experience, but it just is one of the things that's happened to me over the years. So what else do you remember after that particular kind of dream began? 
I'm guessing it's about the same age. And I remember going to visit relatives. And I'm a little kid. They put me down for a nap. And I don't know what came over me or what made me think I could do this. But I laid down in the bed and I went, well, I'm going to slow down my heart and my body and then see what happens. So I'm laying in the bed and I almost felt like I was having an out-of-body experience, rising above and looking down at myself and then returning. And I was a little kid, but it was like, I had no feeling in my body anymore. I couldn't feel myself touching the bed. I couldn't feel that. And it was like my essence, if you will, was rising and then returned to my body. And I went, well, that was neat. And I've tried to do it since and I can't recreate it. I just can't. officially the Guinness Book of World Record holder for youngest Sufi mystic. (laughs) I guess, I guess. And again, I don't know where that came from, but the two things that we've talked about so far are such vivid memories for me that I thought it would be good to include them to maybe help as a preface to when we get into the further discussions, sort of a sense of who I was before that may have created a situation that would have caused what happens next. I'm just curious, have you looked as an adult into past life regression work? Yes. In fact, I did back in the 80s. I actually had a friend of mine who was doing studies on it on his own and was a amateur hypnotist. We got together one night and he was doing his interviews and he asked me if I wanted to. Sure, I was game. I had no idea what would happen. So we sort of went through that. It was an interesting experience. So did you learn anything about your past life from that hypnotic induction experience? Well, yes and no. I mean, the thing that came out of me to me, even when it was done, just seemed very, very odd. He was a believer in reincarnation. So he was trying to take you back to the furthest memory you might have subconsciously. So I apparently during the session, identified myself as someone who had lived in Atlantis, which after I came out of it, it was like, well, that was strange. And he goes, do you have recollections once you're out? And I went, no, that just totally surprised me. I didn't know where that came from. So you'll have to listen to the episode called Into the Mystic. A friend of mine shared a past life experience, but now I understand why when I see you, I see you holding a big fork. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So let's go back. What do you remember happening after those couple of early experiences? Actually, just pretty much a normal life. 
the dream stopped as suddenly as it came. I think it was intense for about six months or so. And then it just faded away. I don't know if it was because I was getting older or I felt more secure or, you know, whatever caused it. There wasn't anything really that happened until later in my life. happened to me while I was stationed in Germany. I went in for surgery for a, a simple hernia operation. And apparently during the operation, they had pulled the inner wall down too hard when they were pulling together and stitching up the hernia that they stopped my heart. And uh, they had to zap me back. The part that <laughs> I remember, of course, on the table, I was out when it happened. And they'd actually put me under because they had had some problems with doing a spinal on me at the time. So anyway, all of a sudden I had a white light dream and I was walking down a dark hallway with pedestals. And on each of the pedestals were people in my life. Some that had already passed, some that were still living. And at the end, there was a very white light, very bright and very inviting. I mean, it was a very comforting experience walking toward the light. And as I got closer to it, finally, one of the people on the pedestals in the row that I was passing before I'd go to the light stopped me and said, no, it's not your time. And then I got pulled back and I came to in the... Uh, intensive care unit and every muscle in my body was in charlie horse because i'd been paddled back again i didn't know about what happened to me until the next day when they came in to check on me and then they explained what what had transpired that my view of life changed i was a very goal oriented and i'd say almost on the edge of demanding kind of person to get stuff done i put up with very little i didn't really think about other people just the goal and getting the goal done and after my experience uh, my outlook just changed i wanted to be more of a mentor and care more about the people, still get the job done, but include them as part of the process and make sure that I wasn't ignoring them and just so focused on the goal that nothing else mattered and people's feelings didn't matter. I really focused more on that, which I think in the long term led to my ultimate success in my job. But it was definitely that white light dream experience that changed me forever. The other part is I didn't fear death anymore.
I don't know if anybody ever really does. After that experience, it was, I don't see an issue. I mean, it was such a welcoming experience, but I've got a different total view of making that next step. And I don't know if it's from a spiritual perspective, but it's more based on that experience. To me, there's nothing to fear. It's just another phase that I'll move on to. So what I recall when you've shared this story in the past that the folks in the operating room said that you had died on the operating table and they had to revive you. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, that's why they had to paddle me. I had died because they had stopped my heart when they pulled the inner wall down too far. So, so you had a near-death experience. Yes. And I should have prefaced it by saying it was a near-death experience with the white light dream. You know, before I had it, it was like, well, that sounds interesting, but I don't know because I've never experienced. Well, now I've experienced it and I know they are real. I remember a little bluer version of this story. Is there anything else that you would feel comfortable sharing for a G audience or maybe a, an M audience? There was a sensual element to the person that told me that it wasn't time yet. The only reason I bring it up is the significance of it is that it was a sign of life, if you will. Now, it wasn't extremely sexual, but more sensual. There was that balance between looking at death and going to the white light, which seemed more comforting. Whereas life is also an element of sensuality and living. And that tied together with saying it's not my time, obviously was enough to stop me. And again, based on pure science, because they started my heart again, I was going back anyway. But it grabbed me at that point where I felt like I had a choice of continuing on or stopping. And uh, so who knows what would have happened had it not been for that, because I don't know. And because it was so comforting and welcoming, it was like the ultimate spiritual embrace. I don't mean that from a religious perspective, but more from, if you will, a metaphysical perspective. It was just sort of a letting go and moving on whether that included religion and some of the Judeo-Christian values that I know I hold or something else. I guess I will never know until I actually enter the light. And hopefully that door is still open to me. You were the person who opened up my curiosity about all of this as a child. So I think your example always left me kind of open to maybe there are things that we can't explain, but you and I both are also people with critical thinking and we think about the science of things and proving things. So that skepticism part of it. But one of the things that I've been learning about is that 
oftentimes near-death experiences open up the door again to these experiences. So as children, people often have more like a spiritual self. They learn that they shouldn't talk about that or they stop having those experiences for whatever reason. But that as an adult, certain things that happen, such as a near-death experience, can kind of open that. Has that been your experience? Have you had more experiences now? Actually, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up. There's been a couple of things, not a lot, but a couple significant. Now, granted, one of them was very emotional for situation for both you and I when our mother passed. And at the time of her passing, I was in her condo trying to catch up on sleep and had been told by hospice that, hey, you're a wreck. Go get some sleep. We'll call you. She's fine. She's stable right now. So before I laid down, I went outside and I was looking out, out of the terrace onto where the palm trees and walkways were and swimming pool by, by her condo. And I remember glancing over and out of the corner of my eye, seeing some colors, sort of turquoise colors, like shirts our dad used to wear all the time. And it was like somebody popped out from behind a tree and was just standing there sort of waiting. And uh, so there was that scenario. Is that part of it or is that something separate? I don't know. I can say it was a comforting experience thinking that, well, maybe he really is waiting for her because the two of those were two peas in a pod. The only other thing that's like that is I had a cat that passed and I still to this day swear there are times that out of the corner of my eye, I'll see her walking around the house. I've got a dog now and the dog doesn't notice anything. It's not like it's reacting to anything, but it's like I still feel like maybe there's something still here on that side. Well, and I remember you sharing the stories about seeing who you thought was dad. He was always the guy who kind of dressed like Doc Severinsen. So turquoise makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a flashy color. And again, the experience with Jewel, the cat. Tell us a little bit more about either of those experiences from either seeing what you thought was a flash of dad or seeing jewel out of the corner of your eye well with dad it was just very comforting to think that he has been watching over her especially during her 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 time where she was very ill and at home and then now uh, just the thought of him waiting to reunite with her was very comforting to me knowing that she was so near the end and then when they finally did call and let me know that she passed, I did take the time to look outside and anybody around and there wasn't anybody, but I did see two birds fly by. Now, what kind of birds? They appeared to be doves. Okay. So I just posted a podcast episode where I'm talking with Naomi and 
I shared with her that there was this day that the nurse had given mom a whole bunch of medication. I mean, morphine, she was like gone for like three days and Charlie had to come over and help move her. And we got her onto the couch so she could be comfortable. And then she woke up and then she was starting to share stories. But as she was sort of in that coming out of morphine, sharing stories, and she was talking about you and she was talking about people and pets who had passed, that morning, there was a dove that was in her patio, the place that you were talking about. And it was like nesting there. It was like sitting in a basket and there had never been a dove there. There wasn't a nest, but it was just sitting there and it stayed there all day long. And I would look out every once in a while because you know where mom had her couch and I was leaning with my back against it because she didn't want me to leave her side. So I would look out every once in a while, it was there all day long. And at the end of the day, the dove flew up towards the window and it did one of those Holy Spirit poses and then flew away. And then it never came back after that. But doves have always appeared when mom was dying, when Pat died, you know, my godfather, your uncle, and after our died, I keep having this dove thing appearing. So it's just sort of interesting that you saw doves as well. Yeah. And uh, again, mere coincidence, who knows? So now with Jewel the cat, what is it that you experience with that? It's just a sense of something moving. And it's always out of the corner of my eye. So when I look, it's gone. But out of the corner of my eye, it's almost like a little shadow moving toward me. But it's very short. And it reminds me of the places that, that she would go. To this day, I still, every once in a while, I'll be sitting somewhere and I'll just catch it out of the corner of my eye. I never fully see her. So is it refractions of light? Very well could be. I just have a sense of that, though, because it just the way it feels. So you talked about some dreams when you were a child. Have you had any dreams as an adult that have made you feel like that veil between heaven and earth got lifted in the middle of the night where you felt like you were actually with somebody who had passed over? In that regard, no, not specifically. The one thing that I would say is significant that changed as I reached adulthood was I was suddenly having, instead of dreams of falling, I was having recurrent dreams of flying, of being able to lift myself from the ground and fly and float with the wind and zoom underneath power lines and hover over hills and look down on the earth as I flew about. And I constantly had those dreams for a long time. And I think of that as astral projections, but again, I'm learning about this. So how old were you when those kinds of dreams began? I was in my 40s and 50s. I have to say, and here's the other side of the coin too, it was during a period of time, too, that 
I was very self-assured. I was being very successful. I was getting a lot of stuff done that people felt couldn't get done. And so there was that side of me that perhaps in my dreams was saying, you're soaring, you know, who knows? you a completely different question. You actually introduced me to the idea of haunted bed and breakfasts and hotels and that kind of thing. You're the only person I've interviewed who actually had an experience with me. And so I wanted to hear your version of it. I'm going to ask you to tell the story (laughs) because that was my first experience with a haunted hotel. And I keep ending up in hotels that turn out have a history of hauntings and I don't know anything about them until after I've been there but I'm going to ask you to just tell that story where we went to Tombstone tell the story about how you found out about the bed and breakfast what happened when we got there well we were planning a trip to Tombstone I was coming to Arizona and we were going to get together and I was watching I believe it was Haunted Histories And it had the story of the haunting in a particular home, which is now a bed and breakfast. So I made reservations for us to stay in that bed and breakfast. And they believed it was haunted because of the suitor being killed, I believe, and the young lady that was her home. So, you know, once once we checked in, the owners of the place told us some of the stories Uh, where they'd hear a knock on the door and no one would be there. And then they explained there might be some things going on in your different rooms. I know with my room, they said things might move. You know, I might put something down and find it somewhere else or some pictures that they had up on the fireplace that was in the room might move, you know, be in different places. And then of course, if I can include this little bit, of course, you picked up on that real quick. So you made sure you got in my room and moved the stuff on the fireplace. So I would think it was haunted. And of course, me at the time, I didn't even notice that. (laughs) So you sort of, had to fess up and say, well, did you notice this? And I said, well, no, not at all. I just really didn't focus on it. And you went, well, I moved them, so I get you. (laughs) And you didn't. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened. So then I had my comeuppance. So tell that part of the story. Oh, that part you need to tell. That's your story. Well, then you have to be the eyewitness because you were there. I, I still remember... I had to go to the bathroom so bad that night and I was terrified to leave my room for some reason. I just was like, oh, I don't really don't know if I want to meet a ghost tonight. So the next morning we were around the breakfast table and the owners of the B&B were there with us. And I fessed up that I was the one who moved that stuff. What I recall is you said, oh, 
there were some, there was a photograph and they were up and one was down and this happened and they said, oh, and then I couldn't help myself and I started laughing. Then we're eating and I'm looking out the window and I said, who's that guy out the window? And they said, oh, that's George. And I said, well, who's George? And they said, he's the spirit. <laughs> he's the guy who was killed. And then you couldn't stop laughing. Yeah. So yeah. it was like, I saw this person standing, looking in the window and they just sort of, oh, that's George. Yeah, they were very nonchalant about the whole thing, which I thought was cool. I mean, the only thing really that I experienced was a couple of times the, the deal with the knock on the door and nobody was there. Or the bell went off and nobody was there. So you heard people knocking on the front door, but nobody was there? And the, the woman said, oh, that's just George again. He always knocks like that. So did that happen before or after I saw the guy at the window? I think it was before. I think it was when we were checking in, not in the morning when we had breakfast. And I know that you have always had a love of Tombstone and Big Nose Kate's and the theater. I forget the name of the theater, the Birdcage. And it's been in a bunch of shows, ghost encounters go there, but it burned down, which is so sad. But I think Big Nose Kate's is still there. Yes. Yeah, it is. Uh, In fact, I remember us going through the Birdcage. I think it was in uh, Ghost Hunters. And so I I knew a couple of the places to look, really didn't see anything. I heard some weird sounds, but it was a creaky old building, you know. There were two things that I've mentioned in podcasts recently. So one was I have this closet door that kept opening. And so you said, get a camera, get a motion sense cameras. So I got one and I ended up getting this really weird video that I've got to post on my Spirited Conversations site of this light that comes from underneath the front door and comes towards the camera and then takes a sharp right turn and goes underneath the closet. It's like really weird. And then I've moved because you suggested that I move it, like put it lower, put it, you know, maybe even put it in the closet. I've noticed though, the cat always gets attracted to that door just before it opens. So I'm trying to figure out, is it the cat who's opening the door? Cause that's a possibility. So I'm trying to debunk it. Or is the cat noticing something there leaving and then the door opens? I never catch her in the act. I see her going towards the door and I see her walking away from the door, but I never see the door actually opening while she's there. So I'm still like, okay, is it the cat or is it a spirit? Have you ever gotten a video of the door opening itself? It never records while it's opening. And it's really weird because it picks up like dust. I mean, it picks up weird things. It picked up that light anomaly when there was nobody The cat wasn't there, I wasn't there, and it filmed this light anomaly. So it's just really weird. So that was one thing that you helped me with, and I've mentioned it in the podcast. The other thing is you suggested that I 
that I get a Ouija board and you gave me one for my birth date. And I said, you know, I'm a little nervous about that because that's how well, things remember, start. Remember, I also gave you a warning. I said, but don't use it unless you know what you're doing because they can't be dangerous. So I went online and I bought a book. I read the whole book and on the very last page of the book, it basically said everything you need to know about Ouija boards. And what it said is, don't bring it into your home. <laughs> well, that's why I had it shipped direct to you. So I have to bring it somewhere else, apparently. I've got sage. I've got all the stuff you're supposed to cleanse with. But yeah, just in case, because I do feel like I have this sense that there is a presence in the house, but it doesn't feel nefarious in any way. But I am careful. So I'm a little reluctant to do Ouija in the house just in case it's something malevolent. It doesn't feel like it. It feels friendly. And I, when the doors open, I leave it open for a couple of days and say, you know, hey, you're welcome here as long as you mean no harm, as long as, you know, you're welcome here if you've lived here before or whatever. And if, you know, if you mean harm, no, you're not welcome here. And, and then I shut the door. And then time will pass. And what's weird about it is recently when we were in Kansas City in the fall, and I said to Charlie one night after Sven Gulli, <laughs> I said, you know, our closet spirit hasn't come around for a while. I swear, Craig, that night the door opened. And yeah. I keep saying to Charlie, are you gaslighting me? Did you do this? And he goes, no, no, no. And he's like totally creeped out. And I'm like, oh no, that makes me feel good because the spirit hasn't left, you know, but the camera never captures the actual movement of the door, even though much smaller things are picked up. It's almost like it disables it just for that amount of time. It's either closed or it's opened, but it's never picking it up moving. It's just really strange. The other part too to remember is that camera is motion activated and it doesn't have a light other than just a power lamp. It's not like an igniter light goes off to say it's on. It just is always on. Like I said, I'm open to being debunked and that it's the cat doing it but it's never captured her actually opening it. So it's still one of those up in the air things. So let me ask you, because you shared at one point that you had an early experience with levitation. Uh, yeah, this would have been as a teenager. A bunch of us got together and partied and we were all sitting around talking and somebody brought up the idea of levitation. So we thought we'd try it. And we actually got the person to move somewhat. Not a lot, but enough that we all just went, no, let's not even go here. Because while we were doing it, someone was calling out to the dark side to assist. And once something felt like it was happening, 
we all just sort of went, no, <laughs> let's stop. <laughs> but yeah, we did a little bit. Now, how much of that was real or just our imaginations? You know, again, group think takes over sometimes in situations like that. But we did have the common sense to say, no, well, no, this is going a little bit far. When you say somebody was calling out to the dark side, were they calling up like a demon or something or what was? The yeah, demon? yeah. The devil. Come help us. Oh, goodness. Yeah. That's, that's going straight to the, the top. That's so crazy. I'm getting. Oh, I was thinking I was seeing light anomalies, but I'm seeing your smoke. <laughs> Debunked. Debunked. <laughs> Did you ever have an experience after grandpa died? I know you had an experience watching the movie Heidi, but was that the earliest death you experienced? Do you remember? Yes. And I mean, it was the first time that I'd ever been at a funeral and seen a dead body. Really, the thing with Heidi was actually a couple of years later, the grandfather in the movie reminded me so much and, and I just was overcome with, I, I, I was feeling that loss again. So it was that kind of thing. Did I ever have anything that would be supernatural or metaphysical with him? No, it was just, uh, I think I got old enough to really discover the feeling of loss after watching that film and it just bringing back enough memories and emotions. So I just remember I was three and I remember being at the funeral and mom or dad or somebody said, oh, he's just asleep. And I remember coming home and if mom or dad were taking a nap, going into their room and putting my ear on their chest to see if they were still breathing, because I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, if they're going to go to sleep, are they going to wake up again? Because grandpa didn't wake up again. And I was close to grandpa like you were. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's odd the kinds of things that we, you know, tend to think will comfort children. Children aren't as, as naive as we think. And when they process the information, they come to different conclusions that at that age make logical sense. You know, like you. Oh, if, does that mean if they go to sleep, they might not get up again? Well, and I probably was in Sunday school and learning about heaven. So I'm thinking that's where this came. But after grandpa died, I remember having this vivid, vivid dream. I was in the clouds, but it was, it was also like a library and grandpa was there. And the sense that I had, I don't think anybody told me this, but it was like that heaven was about learning all the things that, you know, that were possible to know, that all the knowledge of the universe was there. And years later, as an adult, I visited a library, Trinity Library in Dublin, Ireland. I walked into the library and I was like, holy, yeah, uh, pun, no pun intended. This was my heaven. This was the dream I had my view of heaven was Trinity Library in Dublin. And I was probably three, probably like almost four years old when that happened. But what three-year-old has like this concept of knowing everything like a library? I don't know if I'd ever even been in a library 
at that age. I mean, isn't that weird? It's very interesting sometimes the connections that kids can make that one wouldn't expect. Is there any other experience that you can think of that you would be comfortable sharing? The reason I brought up the three different stories is when I finally came to the near-death experience in White Light Dream, the other two things after it was over sort of made me ponder whether there was some connection because I didn't anticipate ever having a White Light Dream. I don't think anybody does. I only brought them up because I had a sense that somehow they were connected and also opened that door for me to be able to have that white light dream. And again, it's such an unknown. And I guess I don't think it's been very well studied other than narratives. So I'm not sure anybody knows much about it. So for those listening to the podcast who may have had experiences that they can't put into some logical explanation, what would you want them to hear in terms of how to process those experiences? My basic thing is be open to them. Don't try to deny it. Accept what happened. And if you really want to, then take that energy that perhaps it's created to do a little more study on others that may have had a similar experience or some other metaphysical realm of study that might help explain to them, well, maybe there is a reason this happened and what have others thought? And I would never condemn anybody to also fall back on their religion to say it was a religious experience. We're all unique, regardless of of who we are, and we all have different views of religion and different religions that we are a part of. Nothing's right, nothing's wrong. The only good thing is to think about what happened, accept it, and try to think through why you think it may have happened and develop some background in that kind of situation. anything that you have read that you think might provide some enlightenment or any sources of information that have helped you along that journey? Actually, yes. I remember when I was in high school, I ordered a series of books that basically addressed the various major religions, read through them. What I found was commonalities. Obviously, too, there were some things that were different based on the societies they were developed in that influenced their practices. But if you looked at the overarching beliefs and thoughts, there was some congruency with all of it. The other part is, I'm not the kind of person that can just say, you're nuts to believe that. Anything's possible. There's so much that we think we know. On the reverse side of that coin, 
there's so much we don't know, especially in this kind of an arena. I think any understanding that we can gain is good. And also take a positive perspective on whatever happened. And if it was something really negative, is there something that you learned that made you better because of it? If so, then that negative thing has created a positive response in you and think about things that way. who are having these experiences, what have you learned about being selective about to whom you share these experiences in terms of boundaries and protecting your privacy and dealing with people who may go, you know, he's lost a screw? Well, quite honestly, I mean, it's just, you have to be a judge of people. It's like any other topic or part of your life. I mean, there are certain things you will share with certain people, and there are certain people you will share nothing with, or you will share a little bit with. In the case of my uh, near-death experience in White Light Dream, I don't care who I tell that to. It was that significant, and to me, it's not all that common. So it's like when people start talking about things in this arena and start sort of judging themselves or whatever, I'll just say, hey, I had this and I'm a better person for it, I believe. Don't hold people in disdain over what they think. Craig, thank you so much for participating. It's a different kind of chatting with your sister. Absolutely. We might have to do more of these kinds of chats. Well, I just hope I don't have to have another white light dream to do it again. Absolutely not. So, (laughs) and I'll just tell you that if I die before you do, I'm going to be visiting you. I'll be the mischievous force in your house. Thank you for listening to Spirited Conversations. Please like and follow Spirited Conversations on Facebook at Terry Kennedy 1111. T-E-R-I-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y 1111. If you have a personal story to share, please message me with a brief description of your experience, your first name, and email address. Sleep tight. Ooh.